Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December the 7th, 2015, and this is episode 1688 of the Survival Podcast. Let's talk about the date here for a minute. December 7th, 1941, the uh, famous day that would live in infamy. This was the day the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Uh, bringing the United States into World War II. Um, have you noticed? I, I mean, I don't know. If you guys are my age, like the Gen X age or older, when I was in school, December 7th was a date that still lived in infamy. In, in this modern war on terrorism world where they found new ways to uh, use fear to control the masses, it seems to have been moved to the back burner. It's it's just an interesting thing to think about. Another thing about today's date, there's roughly four weeks in a month. For you accounting types, you know it's actually 4.34 weeks to a month, but roughly a week to a month. And this completes the first full week of December. One quarter of the last month of 2015 is gone. TikTok, guys. Work on your freedom, your liberty, your independence. Get building stuff for yourself. Remember... There's no static in life. You're either working toward greater liberty and freedom or you're not. Those are just the rules. I don't make them. I just have to follow them like everybody else does. Before we get into today's uh, main subject, which, of course, since it's a Monday, is your feedback. Emails you send to me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. And just make sure TSPC's in the subject line. That'll get you into the special folder so I take a look at it for this type of a show. And uh, remember, I can't get them on all on the air, but I get a lot of them on the air. Before we get into those, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. I helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. When I'm looking for silver or gold, I go to jmbullion.com, and I'll tell you why. They're a small enough company that I can personally communicate directly with the president, Michael, at any time of my choosing. And that means as, uh, as someone that's endorsing them, if you ever have a problem that doesn't get resolved by their customer service, which is 99% of the time stellar anyway, I can make sure that it gets taken care of for you. And I think that's really important in my sponsors. Next is pricing. The entire point of buying silver and gold is it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. You get the same Silver Eagle from JM Bullion as you do from Atmex or Monex. It's exactly the same. It's the same purity, it's the same weight, it's the same design, it's the same cut. It is the same. It's like buying a Wilson basketball, whether you buy it from you know Walmart or Academy Sports and Outdoors. It's the same. That's the point. So why pay more? So why not deal with a company that's a small company, that has great customer service, that offers free shipping on all orders, and has better pricing when you're buying the same thing. Now, why silver and gold? I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not the guy that, like, you need to get out of the dollar. They're going to burn it to the ground. It's going to be worthless tomorrow. By the way, give me your dollars and here's some silver. I'm not that guy. But I do know that the plan for our money is a continued devaluation through the process of inflation, which is a hidden tax on the wealth of the American people. And I know that's the case because the former chairman of the Federal Reserve said so on the floor of the United States House of Representatives while being questioned by Ron Paul. He admitted that and said, it's okay. That's the way the system works. It's supposed to work that way. 
Well, if that's the plan, then my plan is to make sure I have a wealth assurance policy. We talk about insurance a lot, but assurance is, is equally important. And the way I personally do that is I have 10% of my net wealth, roughly, in silver and gold. I recommend that you do something similar. My personal recommendations are that you consider uh, a wealth assurance program of 5% to 10% of your net wealth in hard commodities like silver and gold. And if you need silver and gold, I can't give you a better recommendation than JM Bullion. Check them out today. And remember, members of our support brigade, you do get a discount on larger orders from JM Bullion. Check the benefits section of your MSB account to learn more about that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, raw herbs, and herbal supplements, and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you. And if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium membership 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Next up, I have Lloyd's Coffee Shop. I'm sorry. I have the uh, history segment for 1688. The first uh, segment in there today is Lloyd's Coffee Shop has you covered. The second one that I have for you today from Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com is Germantown Gives the Boot to Bondage. And the third one I have is King Billy and the Glorious Revolution. They're all really cool ones to read today, and I only read one, so you might want to read the others. I'll give a brief kind of summary of Lloyd's Coffee Shop, though. Suffice to say that a coffee shop opens uh, this year, run by Edward Lloyd, and it becomes Lloyd's of London. This is the genesis of probably the most well-known insurance company in the world, and it starts as a coffee shop. If you want to know how that happened, 
tspwiki.com for the year 1688. But I'm going to read Germantown gives the boot to bondage. Several prominent citizens of Germantown, Pennsylvania, compose a two-page letter protesting slavery. It is deceptively simple and concise. It begins by reminding their fellows of their own fears of slavery, what is called white slavery in the modern day. Quote, how fearful and faint-hearted are many at sea. When they see a strange vessel, being afraid it should be a Turk, and they should be taken and sold for slaves into Turkey, end quote. They take their personal fear of being taken into slavery and use that feeling to extend compassion to the black slave. They remind their fellows that as Christians they should treat everyone well, regardless of age, common birth or color, buyer and bought alike. The people of Germantown are Quakers, Mennonites, and at least one Lutheran who tends toward Quakerism. They have come to Pennsylvania for liberty of thought, so how can they deny a man the liberty of his body except when the man should commit a crime? They reject slavery, and this letter constitutes the first objection by white people to slavery in the English colonies. I would amend that one a little bit and say probably the first official objection by white people to slavery in English colonies. Uh, my take by Alex Shrug, the Avalon Project is a copy of the original letter, and it's worth a study. I tried reading it quickly and realized the first few sentences I had already blown past several important points. I slowed down and read carefully. They are using simple words, but the ideas they are conveying are monumental. It is not as elegant as the Declaration of Independence. It's common sense and aimed at the common man. One not, need not be a scholar nor an aristocrat to understand the principles of liberty. Today's educational systems will have us believe that lofty words and soaring rhetoric are required to frame great ideas, and only the finest minds can understand them. But George Orwell thought differently. He said, quote, One has to belong to the intelligentsia to believe things like that. No ordinary man could be such a fool, end quote. Uh, yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? I think that, I think that at this time, people were less easily bamboozled by lofty rhetoric and, and, and pretty words. I think that today's society as a whole, And the younger generations more so have been convinced that if something sounds wonderful, it is wonderful. If we look at history, the things that often sound wonderful to the people in charge at the time end up being the most awful. Eugenics sounded wonderful to many people. It led to the Holocaust and all that eugenics stuff started right here in America. We were the first country to embrace eugenics, and German doctors and scientists came to America to study eugenics prior to World War II. Right? And it sounded like a good idea, especially when it was put out by intellectuals. This is the main counter-argument I hear to things from the young generation, this millennial generation that's currently infesting our university system. Um, the, if you read articles by intellectuals, Oh, which is a way of abjecating your own thought process, your own intelligence, and your own freaking common sense. And in the end, though, I believe that common sense wins the day. I think that if you have to use complex words to explain ideas, the ideas don't have strength of their own. That the strongest ideas can be explained the most simply, and that the most expert people at any given concept can explain it simplistically. That when people insist on using large words 
and multiple words to say the same thing over and over that all sound different but are in fact the same. When people overly rely on quoting great men of the past, when people attempt to make their rhetoric soar, it is to hide the flaws within the core. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. The good news is in history, what you'll see is such things always work, but only for a time. And then there's a turning. And there's another turn. And there's another turn. Maybe we'll get back to that at the end of today's show with our song choice for the day. Some of you know exactly where that's going to go. Anyway, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, and I am going to say something about the MSB with that because it's kind of its own standalone thing today. I've been running a sale, 30 bucks for your first year of Member Support Brigade. And I put out a blog post yesterday basically saying, hey, it ends Sunday night. and uh, But I'll take... Uh, anybody that sends it in by mail today, postmarked, got an email from somebody that said, I can mail you the check or I can just join online. Can I? And I said, you know what? Screw it. If I'm going to take anybody's order Monday, I'll take everybody's order Monday. So you can use the discount code TURKEY. One more day, midnight tonight, it goes away. There will be no more sales on MSB this year. That is it. The end over finito done. But your first year of MSB, or you can renew if you're expired, or you can renew no matter where you're at if you want to renew by mail, 30 bucks for the next year, and then it goes to the regular price after that. MSB's awesome, guys. Please consider joining. That's all I'll say about that today, because I want to get into kind of our, our first main big story today. Um, I have told you guys in the past that you might as well turn off the news, that it's all BS, that it's all controlled. I, though, when we have people come out and actually explain how bad it is from the inside, I myself at times think, wow, you know, I knew it was bad, but really is it that bad? This is an example of that. This is a perfect reason that you should only view news and media from now on as a possibility of what might have occurred. I mean, that's, that's, that's like how you have to look at news. It is one view that may or may not be correct, and it is one view that may or may not be severely tainted. I'm not going to tell you that everything news media puts out is a lie, or everything is done, every single piece of it is done with a specific agenda, or that every single bit of it is controlled by government. Because I think that's a little nonsensical. I think that the way you convince people that none of that is true is by not making it true all the time. I, I don't think when your local news media does a report on some kid with a bake sale or some lady who got ripped off by a local car you know, lot that that was a government conspiracy. I think if you start to say that every single word in line that comes on as part of government conspiracy, you start to sound like, well, Alex Jones. But I digress. To say that there's none of it is, is almost equally loony in this modern world. And, and here is hard evidence. I wouldn't call it conclusive proof because everybody can lie. Okay, I don't see that this woman would be lying, though. Her name is Amber Lyon. She's a three-time award-winning journalist. And she worked for CNN. Here's what she has to say in an article about it on CNN Journalist. Uh, Worldtruth.tv, CNN journalist says government pays us to fake stories. 
shocking expose. According to Amber Lyon, three-time Emmy Award-winning journalist, CNN is routinely paid by the U.S. government and foreign governments to selectively report on certain events. Furthermore, the Obama administration pays CNN for editorial control over some of their content. I, I, I don't even know that I should have to read anymore, right? But I will. Back on March 2011, CNN set a four-person team to Bahrain to cover the Arab Spring. Once there, the crew was subject to extreme intimidation, amongst other things. But they were able to record some fantastic footage, as Glenn Greenwald of the UK Guardian writes in his blockbuster article from September 4, 2012. Quote, in the segment, Lyon interviewed activists as they explicitly described their torture at the hands of government forces, while family members recounted their relatives' abrupt disappearances. She spoke with government officials, justifying the imprisonment of activists. And then the segment featured harrowing video footage of regime forces shooting unarmed demonstrators, along with mass arrests of peaceful protests. In some, the early 2011 CNN segment on Bahrain presented one of the starkest reports to date of the brutal repression embraced by the U.S.-backed regime. During these accolades, and despite the dangers their own, to their own journalists and their sources endured to produce it, CNN International, CNNI, never broadcast the documentary. Even in the face of numerous inquiries and complaints from their own employees inside CNN, it contained... It contained, it continued to refuse to broadcast the program or even provide any explanation for the decision. To date, this documentary has never aired on CNN. Having just returned from Bahrain, Lyon says she saw firsthand that the regime, uh, that, that these regime claims were lies. And I couldn't believe CNN was making me put what I knew to be government lies into my reporting. Here's a segment of the Bahrain Report, and you can watch that video if you want to. When Amber Lyon recognized the extent of the reasoning, she challenged CNN. CNN told her to be quiet and began to view her as a risk. She knew and found out too much. Amber is now trying to tell the story, the real story of what's going on behind closed doors of U.S. media entities. Amber has created her own website. Additionally, she's noted in the Guardian article, she's trying to share the truth of the deceptions. What Amber Lyon describes is exactly the reason why CNN never aired the Nick Robertson interview with Mohammed Alziri in Egypt. Amber recently did a web interview with Alex Jones on InfraWars. Generally, the Treehouse does not, appre not appreciate Alex Jones. He is wound up tighter than piano wire, and unfortunately, much of his own truth is diminished because of the hype he places upon it. Alex Jones is easy to dis I, this is not my opinion. I'm reading the article. Don't get mad at me, you Alex Jonesites. Alex Jones is easy to disregard as a quote conspiracy theorist end quote not because of what he says but because of how he says it. Everything is desperate and dangerous with him. That said, the words and explanations of Miss Lyon in this discussion interview are very poignant and vastly informative. So I share the video with you so you can hear from Amber herself exactly what is being described and articulated. You can watch that video for yourself. It's about, I think, 40-ish minutes, 45 minutes long, so obviously I can't play it on the air. Um, so what this basically says is one of the largest news media outlets in the world, okay? Certainly the United States, CNN.com. 
uh, jokingly had been called the Clinton News Network during the, 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 the Clinton years. Uh, maybe it wasn't a joke. Maybe it wasn't a joke. I think even the people who were saying that felt like, well, you know, they're just a bunch of apologists and left-leaning li media types, and of course they always try to protect the, the liberal politicians, but maybe they literally were. And that means they probably also were the, the Bush News Network, and, and now they're the Obama News Network. They just don't have letters that match up so nicely. And, and here's my thing. If they're doing this with CNN, they're doing it with MSNBC, they're doing it with Fox News. Oh, no, they're not doing it with Fox News. Fox News is is the, the right wing. Oh, God, really? You know, again, if you want to control a population and you want to do it through media programming, think about why they call it media programming and what programming means. You can't do it wholesale to one side. You have to create the illusion of choice, and people in our modern day are so stupid that they believe picking between two things is a choice. I mean, if picking between th two things is a choice, you get to make a choice then. You get to stand in front of me, and I can either punch you in the left eye or the right eye as hard as I can. You have to stand there and take it, but you get a choice. You know, I, I, you can either eat arsenic or you can eat cyanide, and, and both in sufficient quantities to kill you, but you get to choose what kind of death you have. You, you can either be eaten by a grizzly bear or a polar bear. I mean, that's the illusion of choice. You can either have a left boot on your neck or a right boot on your neck. The illusion of choice. And so, even when the people in power have access to controls like this, they would not use all of them to suit their own agendas as they appear to be marketed publicly because it would then be so one-sided that the illusion of choice would disappear And there'd be no place for the resenters to go. And actually the resentment would get bigger and the control would be lost. This is how you control society. With media. You create this illusion of choice. You give people one or two choices. And both places lead to the same place. But regardless of whether you believe that or not, the fact that we have an award-winning journalist who says flat out, that CNN is paid by the White House for editorial control and paid to not run or to run specific stories should be enough. It should be it. It should, again, it should make you just now say, okay, Jack's not a crazy redneck duck farmer like we thought he was. He actually does have some common sense, and what he's been telling us is true. And that doesn't mean all the, all the news is BS. It means every piece of news should be observed as though it is likely to be BS or have lies within it or be slanted or angled to fit somebody's agenda. And that doesn't mean it's not useful at all, but it means it all must be viewed through that lens. Every single thing that we're told by any media establishment, alternative, mainstream, doesn't matter, must be viewed through a filter And we need to find multiple sources of that information that are not repeats. Okay, If CNN, ABC, and CBS all basically report the same thing about a thing, and really all it is is they're regurgitating Reuters, that's not three sources. That's not three sources. You used to be able to rely on media outlets at that level to do some level of vetting. But now if it comes out of Reuters, oh, God, we'll just throw that in a teleprompter and run it on Friday night. I mean, that's how it is. Please think about that. 
as you listen to all this BS going on right now about who said what and who did what and who's dangerous to you and what have you. Because, you know, and what it makes me think of is my sister, God love her, posted a thing on Facebook yesterday. And it's a picture by this company that's making bulletproof blankets. They're orange so that they stand out so you can be seen when you use your bulletproof blanket. They're orange or red. And uh, there's this picture of this hallway in a school. And all these kids, like, laying down on their stomachs with these blankets over their back. And it's an advertisement, basically, for a company that makes this crap. And my, my, my sister, God love her, posted a thing and said, Oh, my God, just to go to school. You know, and if, I commented a couple of things, and, and, and she came back and said, You know, it just bothers me that we even have to worry about this today. When I was in school, I don't remember being scared of anything like this. And here's what I said to her, basically. You may not remember this, but when we were little kids going to school in Jacksonville, Florida, a, a guy and his buddy named Otis Toole and Henry Lee Lucas routinely purchased gasoline from our father at the gas, at the gas station he owned at his tire shop. These were two of the worst mass killers in history. And they were right in our own backyard doing business with my dad. The dangers that we face have always been there. There's just greater coverage and hype of them now. The truth is, more people were killed in automobile accidents in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex on the day of the San Diego shootings than were killed by guns in San Diego. You're more likely to die in a car wreck than you are to be shot by somebody in a mass shooting. You are more likely to have a doctor prescribe a medication for you properly and have that medication kill you than to die in a mass shooting or a terrorist attack. These are the facts. These are the facts. The numbers don't lie. Math doesn't lie, guys. There's, there's more people attacked by sharks every year in the United States than are victims of terrorism in the United States. Think about that. Please, wrap your brain around this. Every single thing. See, the, the one thing I'll say to stick up for Alex Jones here, in this little uh, piece here that mentions him, uh, what does he say? He says, uh, okay, everything is desperate and dangerous with him. How is that different from mainstream media, really? Remember the swine flu? Oh, swine flu and Jack's like guys just this is nothing don't worry about it and I had somebody so upset with Ebola Ebola and I you know I pointed out that you know <laughs> there's a less than a 1% infection rate in, in, in third world crap holes where people poop in the street and Ebola's there and we're worried about it getting us in America And this is not, and I got attacked for that. And of course, it just kind of went away, disappeared. No one talks about it anymore. And it's over and over and over that the media does this to you. Stop buying into the hype. Now, does that mean that there is no danger that anybody will ever shoot at you in your lifetime? No, it doesn't. It does not mean that. That's why many of us choose to be armed citizens, get a carry permit, carry a weapon, and train to be able to defend ourselves and others if something like that happens. Because it's possible. It's also possible you could be walking down the street one day and whack, and a meteor hits you in the back of the head and kills you. It's possible, but you're not going to live your life going, man, we need some meteor uh, uh, protection around here. You know, I mean, there could be a meteor hitting somebody any day. And if somebody got hit by a meteor tomorrow, the media might actually make that case. 
I mean, with the shark attacks, it's few of those as there were. We have people like Matt Lauer going, why are the sharks on the beaches? Why can't we keep the sharks out in the ocean where they belong? Oh, my God. you got to be kidding me. Now, what does this guy pay, like millions of dollars a year uh, to be an idiot, basically? This is your media. Don't buy into the bullshit. Realize that the world's not a safe place. It's not going to be a safe place. But in 2015, as an American citizen, you are safer than you were in 1980. By every measurable metric of numbers and every possibility of you getting killed due to malice. You are safer from all that would do you harm today and from the criminal element and from anywhere else in the world. The only thing you're less safe today from is intrusion into your life by your own government. That's the facts. Let's take another one. Uh, this next one comes from Andrew. Andrew says, I'm not sure, if, I'm sure you've been hit with comments and articles about Second Amendment terrorism, San Bernardino, etc. Um, did I say San Diego? If I said San Diego in the last segment, I meant San Bernardino. I'm sorry if I did that. Uh, but I'd love your thoughts on two things related to all that. The New York Times was an editorial the other day on the front page story. First time in a hundred years, the topic gun control, and more specifically, an assault weapon ban. Uh, yesterday, Obama gave a speech from the Oval Office about terrorism. His solutions seem to be laser-focused on gun control. We've already lost similar liberties as a result of the war on, war on terror. You said a few weeks ago the biggest problem with the Paris attacks will allow more attacks on our rights by the government in order to protect us. It seems to me that if the government is able to attack the Second Amendment in order to fight terrorism, then A, the terrorists have officially won. B, I don't like where the slippery slope leads. Thanks for all you do best. Andrew. Okay, well, here, here's what I think is actually going to happen. The left has notoriously used any and all things like this, including lying about the number of mass shootings in America. By FBI statistics, by the way, you know how many mass shootings there actually were in America in 2015? Four. Four. Not 400. Four. That's U.S. FBI official numbers. Four. The other number comes from a guy that just changed what a mass shooting was all by himself. Okay? But real mass shootings, four. Four. Again, more likely to be bit by a shark, especially if you swim in the ocean, than you are to be shot by a terrorist in America. I'm just saying, right? So they've always done this. Barack Obama has been president for almost seven years now. Anything and everything that he can do to advance gun control, he has pretty much done. He's pretty much done. He's sitting right now with a Republican majority in the Senate and a Republican majority in the House in an election year. They won't wiggle. If he could do something with an executive order, he's done it. There's no way that you go anywhere right now from the left with gun control. You just can't do it. So that has to have a step back and say, thinking about the bullshit news media filter that Jack just discussed for 10 minutes, what does all this rhetoric mean? It's, it's two things. It's two things. The first is, this is the perfect time to ramp up the rhetoric, we need stricter gun laws, common sense gun laws, and create new terms like assault clothing, by the way. Yes, assault clothing is now a thing. To make up bullshit, like, they've, I don't know if you guys, if this was reported nationally, I'd love to hear from you if it was, but there was a report that went on the news over and over and over by our freaking mind-numbingly stupid local media here. 
inside the apartment in San Bernardino where the bomb-making factory was. A bomb, you know, do you know that? It was a bomb-making factory. Can you imagine the level of bullshit you have to be swallowing to accept that phrase? A bomb-making factory. I guess I have a duck making factory in my a duck egg processing factory in my kitchen. Then a factory is any. If I have to explain that, you're beyond hope, and you're probably not listening anymore. Okay, but they also found a receipt from CheaperThanDirt.com that ships automatic weapons, among other things, all over the world. But Cheaper Than Dirt says they've never shipped guns to California. This is beyond stupid. For those of you that are new to the world of guns and gun laws, let me explain to you why. If you want to buy a gun from Cheaper Than Dirt, and you don't go to a retail facility and fill out the form and all that stuff to buy your gun from Cheaper Than Dirt, and you say you go to their website and say, I want to buy an AR-15, Smith & Wesson M&P, yeah, that's good, I'll get that, and I want this little accessory, and I want to buy this, and you click buy, you can't do it. You can't do it. Now, you can, but you can't. Here's what I mean by that. You have to go to a gun store or somebody that has a federal firearms license that could just sell you a gun. They have to receive the gun for you on your behalf. They have to do the same paperwork as if you just went to a local gun store and bought a gun, and then you can get the gun. And you can only do that if the gun being sold is legal in the state that you're in, And the person that, that's doing the FFL transfer is in, and you have to be in the same place at the same time when that happens. That's the only way to buy a gun online, unless you are your own FFL. If you have an FFL, well, you can buy a gun. But, of course, you can buy any gun then. So that whole line of thinking was just stupid. There could be a connection. They had thousands of rounds of twenty-two caliber ammunition. Oh, so they had a couple of bricks of twenty-two long rifle. They had a twenty-two long rifle. Uh, a couple boxes of ammo or a couple bricks of ammo of that. I don't know where the hell I got that. It's hard to get. And I sure didn't get it from cheaper than dirt in the mail. <laughs> That's been hard to do for a long time. And they had a 22, you know, like a Ruger. So I don't know what they had, but they had like a 22. They keep talking about this 22 rifle, like a bunch of morons. I mean, you, you got to be an idiot to fixate on that when these guys went out and, and used a, a, a 223 or 5.56 millimeter for you military types to actually kill people with. And all this crap about the guns and where the guns might have come from. Oh, 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 oh. Okay, let me tell you what they're not telling you. Let, let, let's just look at what they're not telling you. The people that did this went to a holiday party at their places of employment, which was a gun-free zone, by the way. A gun-free zone, by the way. Yeah. The, the, and it didn't have to be. But the, the people that worked there said, we don't want any guns here. All right? And they got upset, and they went home. They had a six-month-old child at home that the people that they worked for provided daycare services for and provided maternity leave and, and all this stuff to support these people. And they left their six-month-old child at home alone, took guns, and went and killed their co-workers. This is, I mean, this is not a gun problem. This is, and some of my libertarian and anarchical friends may get, may get upset with me for saying this, but this is a radical Islam problem. That's what this is. This is radical Islamic nonsense. This is what happens when anybody takes any religion 
and raises it to the level of you feel that you have a right to force your religious beliefs on others and that you have a right to not hear any counter-beliefs by anybody else and that the use of force is justified in the name of your religion. Death and murder and bloodshed are the results of this Every time. And you can, and the religions that have done this have changed over the years, but the formula is the same. The formula is the same. It starts with a belief. It starts with a belief that your religion is not only right, but it is incumbent upon you and your duty to hoist it upon others, and that all other religions should shut their freaking hole and fall in line. And that is where That is where I would tell you that I think the majority of, what's the right word for this? I'm not going to say it's limited to just extremes, but it's not the majority of Muslims. But it's the majority of, I, I don't know what the word is. I think there is a huge segment in, in, the, in, in, in the religion of Islam today that believes this, and then there's a smaller segment that would actually aid and abed people that would, would do harm. And then there's a smaller segment of people that do the harm, okay? And there's a much bigger segment beneath that first one that wouldn't harm anybody, totally opposed to this, doesn't want any of this to happen. But you have to actually think, when we start saying we have minimal numbers of this and all, we have these nations, entire nations, where if a woman dresses and allows her ankle to show, she's taken in front of a public crowd where thousands of people show up to watch and beaten with a freaking cane to punish her. That's not a minority. Okay, that's not a minority. So while all this is going on and they're talking about guns, and you've got this true threat to peace in the world. I'm tired already hearing about threat to America. This ideology and the, the use of force and the concept of states backing use of force for the propagation of any religion, it just has to be Islam at this time, is a threat to peace in the world. It's a threat to safety of individuals in the world. It's a threat to innocent people all over the world. And your government's coming at you and telling you about gun control when they can't get it done. What do you think the, the agenda is? What do you think the agenda is? Here's the agenda. Um, number one, our government and the Saudis want to sign out of Syria so they can put a pipeline through Syria. And the Russians are backing Assad because they don't want that pipeline anymore than Assad does. Huh? Okay? There's the, this is the first thing, right? But what is the, that, that doesn't matter to the average American. The average American's too dim to even comprehend that that little factoid, check it out if you want to, is going on. Okay? What they want to do is what I said a couple weeks ago. They want to come in and further oppress our people from a, a technology and surveillance standpoint. That's what I said that they would use Paris to do. They're going to now flip that to do this with this. Because here's what's being said by the right already. Hey, 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 hey. You don't need to lecture us on guns. All this surveillance and all this security, and you guys let this happen. You had no idea this was going to happen. These people, this, this guy brought his wife into this country on a, on a visa. She came from a part of the world where we know this shit happens. I, I, he, he, she, she radicalized them. They went over there. They went back and forth. It, 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 and you guys had no idea this was happening. Our surveillance is the problem. You guys, you guys blew it. 
Do you see where that leads? That leads to the common ground. See, the, the Republicans really don't want more gun control, in general, most Republicans. And I'm talking about your elected Congress clowns, okay? And the Democrats really do, by and large. And I'm talking about your elected Congress clowns, okay? Because if they both really wanted more gun control at the same time or didn't want it, this whole would go away. It would either become complete draconian or it would just stop, all right? So we know that they both they actually have that agenda individually. So they don't agree on that agenda. Do you know what they work on, though? They work on what they do agree on. That's what they work on. And they both want to increase surveillance. So they will use this and lather up this issue that's out of play for at least another year. It's out of play. It ain't happening. And they'll use that. And as a result, the people will look at that issue and they will sell a bill of goods on needing more ramped up cybersecurity and everything so we can find these people And the right will swallow it, even though they were fighting it two years ago. Because it'll match the current messaging and marketing that's being sent to them right now. So that's what I see coming out of this. Not more gun control. More, more surveillance and spying on the American people completely counter to our Constitution. And both sides being somewhat okay with it. Let's take another one. Next up, a pretty short one. It says, hi, I'm Oxymoron02 on Zello. On Friday's council show, there was a question about raising rabbits. On Zello, we have users that are raising rabbits for personal consumption and for market. You would be impressed with the wealth of knowledge in the Zello community. You might suggest that if people want to talk in depth about a topic, they should consider hopping on Zello. We are not all beans, bullets, and band-aids. We are surviving in style with bacon, a ballista, and battle dressings. All right. Um, I, I tell you what, the Zello community is, is pretty amazing. It, it really is. For those who don't know what Zello is, imagine a ham radio network, you know, like where everybody gets on and talks like two-way you know, radios. One person can talk, everybody hears, and then another person talks, and everybody hears with some additional technologies implemented on top of it. That's what this was like, except you don't need a ham radio license, right? You don't you don't need to have any kind of special equipment. All you need is a computer with a, a speaker and uh, a microphone or a smartphone or a tablet or just about any device. And you download the app and you join the Survival Podcast Network. And there's other networks on Zello as well. But then you get on that network and you start talking to fellow community members in real time. And those guys have integrated a lot of things like Palringo and other stuff in there with it, and they're sharing information all the time, and they're just amazing, amazing people. And uh, so if you want more community interaction or you have a specific question, get on Zello. And a lot of times what will happen for people to get on Zello, they'll get on Zello and say, hey, I want to know more about raising rabbits for market. And there'll be you know, 8, 10, 12 people on there at any given time. And there might not be anybody on there that knows much about that. But they'll say, oh, you know what? So-and-so knows all about that. He's generally on Thursday afternoons. And you get on there and try to connect with them. And, you know, they'll help you connect with people. And I know the Zello teams, you know, they kind of, every once in a while, they'll organize and say, we're going to do a discussion on for two hours on Thursday night or whatever. It's really cool. And to give you an idea of how amazing the TSP Zello crew is, Zello, the company, has had meetings with our moderators and main contributors on Zello to adapt and improve Zello technology based on our feedback because we're one of, if not the most active and well-run channels on the entire Zello platform. 
that that's that's pretty amazing for something that somebody told me about I set up and I did with Zello what I did with the forum. I set it up, I got it going, I got it off the ground, and I left it alone. And I let the community run it the way they wanted to. Because if you're on the Zello crew, I'm gonna tell you there are things about the way that channels run that I'm not gonna say are wrong, but I wouldn't do them. I wouldn't be so heavily rated G. Okay? I wouldn't be throwing people out because they said the word ass. You know, I mean, if you listen to my show, you know how it is. But the community decided that's what they wanted for that channel. They wanted a rated G channel where if the kids are running around, you're on the homestead talking, you're listening together, that they didn't have any of those words. So that's what the community wanted. That's what the community gets. Self-policed. In other words, the Zello crew is an anarchy. It's an anarchy. Well, that would be all chaos. No, this is a perfect example. This is a self-organized group where people voluntarily associate, and those that don't like it go and voluntarily associate somewhere else. And because of that, it's dramatically effective, and it's dramatically free of arguing and fighting and, and what have you. I mean, another example of an anarchy that doesn't even allow discussion about anarchy because I said so is the Regenerative Agriculture Group on Facebook. This group's less than two months old. We got our 4,000th member today. 4,000 members of Regenerative Agriculture on Facebook. This is another great place to learn. I mean, people throw out a question, and 20 people that are actually doing it show up and go, here's what we do, here's what we do, here's how we do it. Oh, man, I tried that. It costs us a lot of money. Here's how I'm saving money. Here's the numbers in my opera. I mean, oh, my God. In two months? And do you know why that group works that way? It's an anarchy. And most anarchies are what you would consider on some level of voluntary dictatorship. For an anarchy to function, there has to be kind of, this is our operating, this is where we operate in. This is our scope. This is, what, this is our rules. You don't have to participate. It's not like a state. See, a state, you're born here, you're going to freaking pay your taxes, you're going to be registered, you're going to get a birth certificate, you're going to get a social security card, and you want to do anything, you're going to have done that shit, we're going to track you, we're going to tax you, we're going we're gonna to enforce our will on you, and you can't leave. You try to leave, you leave with a passport, we decide when you can leave, how long you can leave for, and when you come back. And if you do leave and go somewhere else, it's just like that everywhere else, it may be worse. See, we're in anarchy, it's like, okay, this is what we do. This is how we do things. This is what everybody agreed that the purpose of this organization, this voluntary association was. And we're going to have those rules be, and everything else just takes care of itself. And the community then will form itself. And it will ebb and flow and become its full potential under that charter. And if there's another charter that's a better charter, it will exist somewhere else, and people will gravitate toward it, and we will learn from the results of the two. And I think the best things in the world are anarchies. And it's probably not the way anybody's ever explained the word anarchy to you. I have an article coming out soon. I think a lot of you guys that are anarchists will love sharing this, this article with your friends who just can't get their heads around anarchy. Because they'll be like, here's ten things you can do to be an anarchist. And I think most people will look at those ten things and go, I'm doing four of them already. I could do them better. I didn't know that's what anarchy was. I thought anarchy was people shooting each other in the street and throwing bombs at each other. No. People shooting each other in the street and throwing bombs at each other. 
That sounds like government to me. I don't know. Anyway, enough on that one. But yeah, check out Zello and check out the Regen Agriculture uh, list on uh, Facebook. I think you guys really like that. If you want to do either one, just go to survivalpodcast.com. Up at the top, you'll see Connect with TSP, and you'll see Zello as one of the ways to do that. And you scroll down a little further... Uh, in the same center column, you'll see a great big logo for regenerative agriculture. Click on that. Come on over, join up, and be part of the insurgency that is regenerative agriculture and making a living doing it. Um, the next one comes from R. This is some interesting stuff here. could probably be a show to itself. And I don't know, this would be one of those ones. Maybe someday I should get John Pugliano on. And uh, we should talk about this. If anybody actually can get me the full article, though, because I'm not... I'm not paying 300 bucks to be a, a, a CNBC premium member. Uh, it says I get a free membership, but only if I sign up for this $300 annual thing. And I'm sure it's going to be like pulling teeth to actually cancel. So somebody has this full article or can tell me where the, um, the Goldman Sachs actual predictions report is. I'd love to get the whole one. But I'm just going to give you with the summary of it. And it's, uh, again, a CNBC article. I will link to the outside the special place, uh, world. Uh, but here is the the seven predictions. Number one, the blockchain could disrupt everything. Sounds like what people here have been telling you for a long time. Um, space is once again the new frontier. <laughs> I mean, this one, Goldman Sachs, future-looking report. You could hear a little bit of glee in my voice as I say it. College may not be worth it. <laughs> Next one. Generation Z matters more than millennials. Generation Z is the next group coming up. Um, the next one is there will be another flash crash of the markets. Well, I'm pretty sure they're accurately predicting that because they're the ones that generally cause and profit from it. Lithium is the new gasoline. I'd actually love to hear what they mean by that. I understand you know, the, the gist, but I would like that. And then the cloud can help cure cancer. Let me give you a few things that I, I think are true here. The blockchain disrupting everything. So I have another story for you today where Goldman Sachs is actually filing a patent for a virtual settlement currency. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. They want to play in this world. But here's here's why it could be disruptive. And we'll, you'll understand more when I cover their story on this. But all the banks want to get in on this now. But it doesn't work for a bank the way it works for just you and me exchanging directly. And they want to control this thing that actually renders them obsolete. We don't need a bank. Okay? It, with Bitcoin and blockchain technology, blockchain technology managing any currency, honestly, there's actually no reason you couldn't develop a blockchain technology that moved U.S. dollars. Or all global currencies like a Forex. Just saying. I'm just saying, okay? There's no reason that couldn't be done. Other than the central banks are the issuing authority for the currency. But if you created a system where there was basically a coin that represented U.S. dollars and they were purchased one dollar for one coin, and once the purchase was done, you move dollars onto the blockchain, after that's done... Unless you need more dollars in the system, the, the Federal Reserve is, is, is irrelevant. The United States government is irrelevant to the blockchain. And the banks are irrelevant. 
But since there's always this constant need for more, that's why Bitcoin has mining technology to limit production and actually create new currency and create an inverse relationship, which actually has a currency that gets stronger over time versus weaker. Okay? It is a deflationary currency. So it encourages saving. That's what Bitcoin is. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just the tip of the iceberg. The blockchain is not just about moving Bitcoin, and the concept of a blockchain is not just about moving Bitcoin. We could run elections with the blockchain and make them immune to fraud. Absolutely immune to fraud. That's interesting. That's interesting. We could run companies on a blockchain. We, I think we could run, and I've done shows about in the past, virtual nations on a blockchain technology. You know, I've talked about, like, why do you involve the state in your legal agreements? If you and I are going to do business together and I write a contract, do you know what it's going to say? You and I have to go to a non-binding private arbitrator first, and we have to both, in good faith, work with that arbitrator to see if we can find a solution. If that fails, we go to a private binding arbitrator. And when that arbitrator rules, then we have to accept the ruling of that binding arbitrator. It's also private, no state. We could do all that with a blockchain. And there's a million more things we could do with a blockchain. Space is once again the new frontier. They're basically saying, you know, companies like SpaceX, you're, you're going to have hotels in outer space. Like all that shit they promised you in the 80s when you were a kid in school like me, right, that didn't happen, it, it, we're on the way toward that right now. And the, the economy of that is beyond comprehension. What that starts to lead to is unbelievable. College may not be worth it. Duh. And the reason, and here's, like, I want to make sure people understand what I'm saying. The reason college is not generally worth it anymore is that 75% of the people who go to college, A, don't belong there, and B, have a, a degree that's actually not useful for their employment or their advancement in life. About 25%, that's exactly the system we need, though it could be better, okay? But, but the basic concept of four years of higher education, engineering, mathematics, uh, things like that. Um, if you're going to be a doctor, if you're going to practice law, I mean, there, there's an entire grouping of professions that are really ideal for a university-type system. And then most people's degrees... It amazes me that anybody even makes a defense of this. You could say, well, 70% of people with degrees, they're in a job that their degree's not relevant to. And people still say, well, it's still good that they went to college because it still helps and you could still... What? What kind of retarded response is that? Oh, did I offend somebody by using the R word? Uh, grow up, you know? Jesus. Anyway, so college may not be worth it. Gen Z matters more than millennials. Two reasons why. One, they're on the upswing. The, 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 the Gen Z types are all little kids now. And they create a huge demand in spending. And I think that looking forward, people are already starting to write off you millennials. And it's up to you guys to change that. Because you're offended by everything. You whine about everything. And I know some of you don't. So don't, if you're, but you, you, if you are a millennial and you're not that way, you know that most of the people in your generation are. You know, and it probably should, it probably sickens you. And they're not gaining traction in life. The, the problem is they're also, by and large, the parents of this new generation. And the, the tail end of Generation Y are the parents of this new generation. It's, it, it's complicated. And I'd like to know more about what 
Goldman Sachs means by this. But basically, they're already taking the focus off Gen Z or Gen uh, Millennial to Gen Z, which is what they're calling this next group of kids coming up. Uh, a flash crash. I, I don't really want to go into that. lithium. I mean, every device in the planet is is in modern times is being powered by a lithium battery, and I don't know that gasoline's the right word for it. It might be the new gold in some ways. Because there's a finite supply of it, it has to be mined. It is what you would call an inelastic demand at this point. In other words, if the price goes up, it just has to go into the price of the goods being produced with it because I can't not use it. Um, so maybe it's the new silver. Uh, and the cloud can help cure cancer. I have no idea what they mean by this. But here's, here's my thought on that. I think that, like, if you said, what is, like, one of the greatest challenges to mankind in the modern era? A great noble pursuit that Democrat and Republican and Libertarian and Anarchist and Statist and Centrist and Liberal and Conservative and everybody would say, that is a noble pursuit. And it seems almost undoable. Curing cancer. Because curing cancer is not really a thing like we think of. Okay, what cancer? Curing what cancer? Breast? You know, there's a whole organization just to do that with hundreds of millions of dollars a year thrown into it, and out of it comes very expensive drugs that may or may not work, that a lot of people can't really afford. You know, but okay, you know, it's it's still something we'd like to see get done, but you don't treat breast cancer and kidney cancer the same way. And if you have bladder cancer right now, it's considered inoperable, untreatable, and terminal. Pancreatic cancer and liver cancer are far more severe than most forms, especially of skin cancer. Do you have a form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? So which one? Right. So there's so many different cancers that even if we conclusively like took a, a cancer that routinely kills people, let's say pancreatic, because that's like when you find out you got cancer. That's one thing you really don't want to add into, you know, that, that you don't want that to be the next thing you find out. It, but we can we we found a way to treat and cure pancreatic cancer. It doesn't mean that it would do anything possibly to treat other forms of cancer, even though it's one of the most aggressive and most dangerous forms of cancer and hardest to diagnose and gets diagnosed late and that's what's even worse about it, okay? So When we look at that, you kind of get like this this monumentous thing that cannot be done. And so I don't know if this is what Goldman Sachs is saying, but what I'm saying is when we enable communication and collaboration through the cloud and we stop hiding everything and stop compartmentalizing everything and we let the greatest minds in the world on a given subject actually exchange ideas and work on that, Things that seem like we can never do them, not only will they get done, but they get done dramatically faster than they would ever have gotten done in the past. That's what it means to me. And if that's not what Goldman Sachs means, fine. I still believe that. And I still think that is the most encouraging thing about our future, is these technologies that can be put to use for evil for surveillance and, 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 and grouping people together into areas of control and saying, you know, like, you know, we'll get to this other thing later. But we can take those things, and because I believe most people do want to do good for society, if they can find their calling and then connect with others, 
You can do anything from start a stupid little Facebook group about how to make money with agriculture in your own backyard and do so in a way that actually helps the, the planet, helps ecology, helps biology, or you can cure cancer. And it's this collaborative thing that lets people move faster than any time in history if they actually use it for progressing forward versus procrastination. And I think most people that would have a mission in life, I want to develop a cure for cancer, and have the intelligence and the smarts and the study and the background and the ability to actually make progress there, if you tie them into others with that, you know, it's the old two heads are better than one. Well, think about it this way. Instead of two or three or a dozen or 12 smart people in one room, we can have 1,200, 12,000, or 12 million people working on a common problem in an open-source cloud-based system. And I think we can cure cancer and more. I think we can grow food on a space station eventually. I really do. Another real quick one here. Um, stuck in New Jersey. I'm sorry about that. That's the name that's given here. Um, you spoke highly of these units on your show. You also said they're hard to find right now, so I thought I would pass this along. And what these are are U.S. military immersion heaters. They can run on gasoline, diesel fuel, kerosene, pretty much any kind of a burning fuel. And what you do is you take a 32-gallon galvanized trash can, and you put this in there, and then you fill it up with water, and you set this heater up, and you get it going, and it brings that water to near boiling. And there's just so many things that that can be used to do, like set one up, set it on a really, really slow drip, and put it in a greenhouse overnight. And it should get you through a lot of, you know, problems. Because even when the, the heater finally wears out, you've got 32 gallons of hot uh, water uh, continuing to dump heat into a closed situation. That's just one example we can do with them. Anyway, Sportsman's Guide uh, has these on sale. And uh, really, I, I'm going to put a link, and I don't know how many other places they're available, but they are available there. I got mine from Tim at old, Tim Glantz at Old Grouch, uh, but he doesn't have any in stock right now, so I thought I would uh, kind of mention that those are there. And I just wanted to throw out a little thing for guys that are my age that might remember Sportsman's Guide back in the day, as they say, right? So back in the 80s, I remember this catalog that used to come to my house, and it was like a sporting goods novelty catalog. Like half of the catalog was like T-shirts that said stuff like happiness is a steaming gut pile. Uh, and they were like the first people that ever had the, the Portageon, right, which is like a, a like red bottle with a lid that you pee in. And it had a female adapter on it. It, it was like, and it even said yuck in the, in the thing, but it made the point that like, if you're stuck in a car, you might want to have this. It's better than, I don't know, trying to fill up a beer bottle like Dumb and Dumber or whatever. So I just, I remember that catalog and it had all kinds of little nifty stuff in it. And it really didn't have, it wasn't like a competitor back then to, to something that we would think of today like a Cabela's. Like, Cabela's was the serious catalog, and Sportsman's Guide was all this other kind of novelty stuff and a few serious things. And that guy, I can't think of his name now that started that company, but he really grew that into something. And that's an example of an American success story. Uh, it really is. And, and the reason I kind of bring that up is, one, if you're a kid like me that was into the outdoors in the 1980s, before the Internet... And, and stuff like this, you know, like catalogs were a major source of information and magazines. Like, you know, you know, you learned how to tie knots in Outdoor Life magazine and stuff like that. If you're, you know, 40 or older, you probably kind of resonate with this. You probably just remember that. And they had some pretty cool Christmas stuff and all. But the other thing is, I want people to still realize, 
Whether you want to build a small business selling in your local community, or you want to build something really impressive, like a sportsman's guide, it could still be done. It's hard, and if it wasn't, everybody would do it. But the fact that something's hard doesn't mean that it's impossible. So I, I still want, and you know, I, I just kind of beat up on you guys in the millennial generation. You know what? It's easier for you than it is for us. You have the energy if you want to have it. You have the, the, the lack of fear if you want to have it. And you can toughen up. And you, can, you guys are the ones that can make this happen. The people that build companies like that, they've done their great work by the time they're in their mid-30s, generally. It's not often that a person, and I don't want to discourage anybody because it, it does happen, but it's not often that a person, you know, at 38, that's never been anything but an employee, not only starts a business, but builds it into something that changes lives. You know, it, it's usually, you know, a Steve Jobs thing. A bunch of young kids in college in the garage. You guys of this generation that, that feel like you're lost and feel like, you know, it's everybody's fault and there's nothing that can be done and it's so hard, man, don't squander your time. Don't do it. Get shit done. Because you can. The, the whole thing about your generation sucking You only suck as bad as you choose to suck. About being wussies, you're only as wussy as you choose to be. You don't have to be. You don't have to be. You can be one of the great members of your generation. And you can do great things if you really want to. Whether it's start off with something stupid like silly t-shirts and build it into a multi-million dollar corporation like Sportsman's Guide is. Or just change the economy of a small town by creating jobs for two or three people. And that's all it takes, honestly, to change an entire small town of a few hundred people. You employ two or three people. You make the whole town a little bit better. So do your great work while you have the opportunity, guys. I'm serious. Let's take another one. Here's an interesting one. I'm not even going to read the article in, in, in the, you know, kind of the name of, of keeping things short on time or keeping things moving on time. Uh, Monsanto actually face may actually face charges in the International Criminal Court for Crimes Against the Environment, or Ecocide. And this is an article on SustainablePulse.com. And uh, Sarah sends this and says, Your opinion, what do you think the outcome might be? Do you think this will create a slippery slope for citizen-level charges of ecocide? Uh, quote, we'll consider whether to reform international criminal law to include crimes against the environment or ecocide as a prosecutable criminal offense, end quote. Thank you for all you do, Sierra. Okay, so here's the thing. Anybody that's listened to this show for any length of time knows that I consider Monsanto Corporation to be among the filth of planet Earth. That there, there, there is nothing in general that makes me happier than hearing bad news from Monsanto. That if I could, you know, I would. I, in the words of Thomas Jefferson, when when saying about the, the British Islands, I would gladly lend my hand to sink the whole of them if I could. Okay, that's how I feel about Monsanto, and I'm not happy about this at all. You really have to think before you get excited about something bad happening to someone you dislike if there's the potential for that new precedent of power to be used against others that you may like. 
Like, what really is a crime? Like, there's a couple things going on here. Number one, if you have international criminal law, what that means is that you have world government. It's the very nature of government. To be able to say, here's something you cannot do, and if you do, we will come get you. And even if your own country says, huh, you know what, that's not how we do things, that you still could be prosecuted under international law. It is a violation of the sovereignty of nations. Might it be a better alternative than war? Probably if society evolves to a point that can deal with such things and we're not there. I think we'll be, we'll be able to be a stable anarchist world before we can have a world government and have it be okay. Right? It's not that it can't work, it's that it won't. Um, and it, it opens up so many other things if you start thinking about it this way. So what it actually makes me think of is, we're back to the gun control thing. So one of the things that, that sounds good, remember I said whenever something sounds good, you better think twice about it, because just because it sounds good doesn't mean it is good. So with the gun control debate, there is this mantra, well, we should at least prevent mentally ill people from getting a gun. Well, right now, anybody that's considered mentally ill enough to be a danger is not supposed to get a gun by existing law. Okay? That's the way it is. Now, could we scream for that better? I don't know that we need to, but we probably could. Okay? I don't know that we should, but we probably could. And it probably, I don't trust the government to do it, but it probably could be done in a way that is better, that actually makes sure that somebody who has suicidal thoughts and has written a, a, a letter about killing 20 people, and is under psychological evaluation, if he goes to buy a gun, then it's a little easier to say, e no, not you. But everybody has a right. Come on, let's, let's, let's be, let's use our friggin' brains, right? You don't want that guy out there with a rifle any more than anybody else does. If we actually could identify that guy, okay. But here's the problem with it, just like this ecocide crap, okay? So, what does mentally ill mean? Well, mentally ill means that you've been diagnosed with a mental illness. Okay? <laughs> There's a mental illness called Oppositional Defiant Disorder, ODD. It's in the same spectrum of ADD, by the way. And it's basically, when diagnosed in children... Children that don't listen, that get angry, that get upset. But in the end, if you read through the whole thing, it pretty much means if you think for yourself and do not conform to the norms of society, you have ODD. And if we look at the, psycho the psychotrophic drug industry, their stated goal is to medicate everybody for a diagnosed mental illness. So if we... We come out with a blanket statement, like people with a mental illness should not own firearms. And we get that passed under the, the idea that some deranged, crazy person that really shouldn't have a gun shouldn't have a gun. And then, well, you know what? I'm sorry, your psychologist says you have ADD and OCD uh, and ODD. So you have three. Well, pfft, that's too many. You can't have a gun anymore. Pull your rights. And they're more likely to get something done that way than they are any other way. And, and think about that from a standpoint of, wouldn't you say that the majority of Americans who do think for themselves 
are oppositionally defiant to authority. And see, all these diseases always start out with children. ADD was a childhood issue, right? And then ADHD was a childhood issue. And then all of a sudden, hey, there's a thing called adult ADD. You always start with the kids, because it's easy to take a kid that's a problem and tell his parents, the kid has an illness. Here's a drug, give it to the kid, the kid will be normal, whatever the hell normal means. Right? He'll stop asking why, he'll sit down, he won't get irritated when you make him stop doing what he wants to do, and make him do what he doesn't want to do. He'll be obedient. He'll be a good citizen. Right? He'll be a good drunk. So just you know, give him this medicine. Convince the teachers, the kids have problems and need drugs. And then you just flip a switch and you say things like it's, it's, <laughs> if you look up ODD, it says it's not curable, but it is treatable. The greatest thing in the world for the pharmaceutical industry is an incurable disease. So now wait a minute. What that means, just taking this template here, we convict the most hated corporation on the planet of ecocide. They face criminal charges, whatever. We establish a precedent for this. And now we say, you can't dig holes the wrong way on your property. And we take that template and we just apply that to gun control. We say that if a person's got a mental illness, they, the mentally ill should not have guns. I mean, come on, you got to be crazy to think that. You must be mentally ill. You shouldn't have guns either, right? I mean, and a common sense person, when you say mentally ill, that accepts the term is meaning the type of person that is nuts is not is not going to disagree with that. I don't disagree. As, as big an advocate as I am for guns, right? And I don't think we need to... I think we could actually be a lot safer if people had uh, the impetus to look for nutty people with guns and make sure that they didn't have them on their own than if the government was doing it, right? Because that's a problem. Everything the government does for people, people stop doing for themselves. You know, if the government could breathe for people, uh, there's people that wouldn't friggin' breathe anymore on their own, you know. Um, but so we, we, we set that precedent, and we make such a clearly logical argument. And then we just start expanding the definition of mental illness. But, but, but wait, we don't have to. There's a whole industry. There's a whole billion and multi-billion dollar industry. Literally, when you add it all up, it's a trillion dollar industry. This dedicated to doing that for us. We don't even have to do it. All we got to do is, 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 is get buy-in, pass the losses, mentally ill people can't get a gun, and then let's wait for the pharmaceutical industry to, to define every behavior is mentally ill on some level and have a drug for everything. Then you got you to start doing the math here, kind of like the, uh, the, 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 what I call noun math, right? So it's, it's not number math. It's, it's like the addition of things start to paint a picture that you can see and where it leads to. Okay. So the noun math here is this. Now we have a law that says the mentally ill cannot own a gun. Okay. Not only are you diagnosed, you're on medication for your mental illness. You know, how many, how many women in this country are on antidepressants? Somebody look that up for me so I have a figure and I don't have to look that one up. And I'll, I'll put it on a future show. That's a shitload. Well, you, you have depression. You have depression and you, you've been diagnosed by a medical professional with depression and you're being medicated. Well, my medication helps me. But if you stop taking it, you can get depressed and kill yourself. You can't have a gun. 
by the way, suicidal thoughts are one of the side effects of your medication for your depression. You're diagnosed. You have a mental illness. You can't have a gun. But my boyfriend wants to kill me. Call 911. That's where this type of thinking leads. We'll prosecute Monsanto an international court for ecocide. Well, that means that some government force, tens of thousands of miles from you, do you have no voice in whatsoever, even less of a voice in the oligarchy that is the American government, can decide something's a crime and hold you accountable or hold your whole nation accountable for it. Yeah, I'm not signing on for that, even if it does you know, cause harm to a company that I despise. Sometimes, sometimes, you have to stand up for your enemy. And the truth is, if you're in a society that's based on liberty, and you're committed to true liberty, you probably need to spend more time standing up for those you disagree with than those you agree with. I think there's plenty of things Monsanto's doing right here in America that they shouldn't be able to get away with. But it's up to us to stop enabling them. And instead of trying them for ecocide, maybe we should be looking at whether or not a private entity should be able to patent a life form. I think if you took away that one thing, that their their factor of harm right now, if it's a 10 on 10, would, would cut down to a 4. Because most of what they do that's so awful today is only enabled by the ability to patent life forms. If you took away that ability, you would take away the incentive to do the harm that they're doing. I'm just saying. But when we look at it from a liberty viewpoint, this is why I say to those of you that think marijuana is the worst thing, it's the devil's spawn, whatever, in the end it's a plant. And that if you're for liberty, you should be for the decriminalization of marijuana. It should be completely legal. No one should be incarcerated for owning, smoking, or selling a plant. Period. The end. Even if you want to make the case for refined drugs and things like heroin and all, and I, I could go do a whole show just on why prohibition doesn't work, but if you want to do that, I get it. Okay? I understand. I don't agree, but I understand. I understand. I, you can make a logical case for it. Marijuana, you can't make a case for it. Right? So, I don't think people should smoke marijuana. And in, in a liberty-oriented society, you should spend more time standing up for what you disagree with than needing to stand up for what you agree with. Or you should have, it should be more that people need to stand up for what's unpopular than for what's popular. In a liberty-oriented society, run as even a pseudo-democracy, which is what this country is. It's a republic. It's supposed to be a republic run by democratically elected government officials. It is an oligarchy. It is a pseudo-democracy democracy in the form of a republic and it is actually an oligarchy which by the way is a republic so you people that are like you run me like science fiction fans that go to a trek convention like in episode four there was shut up we try to get people on technicalities god that drives me nuts but anyway but anyway i digress there for a second um what i'm trying to get across is even in a pseudo-democracy the majority of things that that a heavy majority of people, let's say 65-70% or more, feel should be legal and acceptable, will be. And the majority of things that, let's say, only 25% of people think should be legal and acceptable, uh, however, it, things that have no victim 
okay, uh, will we'll still end up being outlawed. I mean, you can just see how, how that happens. And if you're actually for liberty, that's the part you have to worry about. Because all the things that you take for granted that you're able to do today, that you think you should be able to do today, you're only enabled by the fact that a majority of people agree with you. Which means if that opinion changes, there's a new guard, so to speak, that comes in, you can lose that freedom. And it's only by defending the freedom of others that you can ever hope to defend your own freedoms and the things that you hold dear. This is why I think the Christian nation argument is just stupid. This is not a theocracy. For all the faults this government has, for the love of God, we can be grateful at least that it is not a theocracy. If you want to see what a theocracy is like, go to the Middle East. Okay, This might be a nation where the majority of people are Christians, but in our form of government, we are, if we were to be accurate about the way our government is supposed to be run, yes, a constitutional republic. Where the minority right is supposed to be protected from the majority's will. And that's why... You know, I bring up issues that are divisive, that make you think like gay marriage and like marijuana, because they're two examples of things that the state just shouldn't be involved with at all. You should be able to grow any plant you want. It could be dangerous. You know what? Foxglove is used to make a drug called digitalis, and a good old heaping handful of foxglove will kill your ass dead. It's one of the most dangerous plants, and it's grown as a freaking ornamental because people generally don't eat things that kill them. And where there's nobody out there saying, you know what we need to do? We need to outlaw Foxglove, man, because the oleander. You want to kill yourself dead? Make up a big soup bowl full of oleander and, and, and hog that down. You'll be dead. Right? It's used, it's one of the most common ornamental shrubs in America. So the, the fact that a plant can be dangerous if misused it, it is no reason that it needs to be illegal. And those two plants are both far more dangerous than marijuana. But Jack, the new marijuana is stronger. That's what happens when you make something illegal. People that want to sell it and make money on it know that they can make lots of money, so they, they increase its potency to get around your laws that punish, let's say, an ounce differently from a pound. So all of the, the, the persecution of marijuana led to its evolution. And in the places it's been legalized, they haven't turned into drug-ridden slum holes. There's less crime where marijuana's been legalized. Ever since the Supreme Court decision was going to destroy the American family, and a bunch of gay people ran out in a couple days and got married in case they changed their mind, nothing happened because, you know, Bob and Sam got married, or, or, or Becky and Sue got married. Your family didn't fall apart. If your marriage is affected by gay marriage, one of you is gay. One or both of you is gay. Seriously. There's so many threats to the family in our society today. You know, if you just look at the way society is run today and the divorce rates and how they've climbed over the last 50 years, that doesn't have anything to do with gay marriage. Maybe you need to worry about all that shit rather than two people that love each other, even if you don't condone it, want to get married. But Jack, they're going to make my pastor marry someone. So when they go try to make your pastor marry someone, then we can worry about that. And you'll find that that has not happened. All these supposed pastors that have ended up in these situations were for-profit chapels. They weren't actually churches. You can't even get married in the freaking Catholic Church with a divorce, let alone being gay. Good luck with that. Well, they're going to make some lady make a cake. You know what? I, I completely oppose that. 
I completely oppose that. And I have a solution for you. Get government out of marriage. I mean, wouldn't that just fix it all? Government has no say over who gets married to whom. But some guy will marry his donkey. I mean, that's the that's the type of objections I hear here. Listen, a guy that marries his donkey has bigger problems in his life than the fact that you don't like it that he married his donkey. He's got real mental problems. And he's prob anybody crazy enough to marry their donkey is probably going to do it whether you like it or not in their own little world in their head because they're actually one of them crazy people is already married anyway. Okay? And he wouldn't be going to the courthouse to get a certificate for it because government wouldn't be in that business. See? So if you want a solution, we have to stand up for the unpopular ideas as long as they don't harm anyone. That's what I take away from this. But, you know, I'm just for freedom and liberty. It, 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 unconditional freedom and liberty until such time as they interfere with someone else's liberty. I'm totally opposed to making somebody who doesn't want to participate marry two people for any reason. I don't care if it's a gay pastor that doesn't want to marry straight people. He shouldn't have to do it either. I don't think anybody should have to do anything like that they don't want to, but once you let the nose of the camel in the tent pretty soon, the whole camel's in the freaking tent, and two more are coming behind him. Yeah. You end up with three camels, federal, state, and local, all in your tent. That's where that metaphor goes. How's that noun math? And it's where these slippery slopes lead. It's where they lead. The oppression of liberties for all. If you are okay with anybody's liberty being oppressed, don't be surprised sooner or later when you find somebody oppressing yours. Oh, and by the way, before we move on, here's a little note about fact-checking stuff and understanding things before you get too wadded up about them. That trial against Monsanto, yeah, it's a mock trial at the Hague. It's not actually got any authority, no teeth, and any results that come from it. But you know what? Every lesson that we just discussed applies to it anyway. And it is what the goal of global governance is, to do things like that. But it does change it a little bit when you add one word to the sentence, doesn't it? Please keep that in mind as we go forward today. Next, I said we would come back around to Bitcoin and blockchain technology and Goldman Sachs. And uh, this does show us how serious Goldman Sachs is about that space. This is from John Pugliano from the Expert Council. It's from the Financial Times. It's in a PDF. So I'll upload the PDF so you guys can read it for yourself if you want to. And there'll be a link in the show notes. But it's uh, dated December 3rd, 2015. Goldman Sachs files patent for virtual settlement currency. Goldman Sachs has made a patent application for cryptocurrency settlement system in Mamouve that underlies bank hopes the architecture behind Bitcoin can revolutionize global payments. The application for a new currency dubbed Settlecoin by the bank said it would offer nearly instantaneous execution and settlement of trades involving assets including stocks and bonds. Banks have been racing uh, racing to the top, tap the power of the blockchain, the ledger system that backs digital currencies such as Bitcoin. Harnessing the technology has been linked, likened to changes wrought by file transfer systems in the music industry or to the effect that email had on communication. 
Although electronic dealing platforms have increasingly made front office trades virtually instantaneous, the actual swapping of payments often still takes days, creating a risk in the banking system. The premise of the blockchain is a network of computers that share the cost of transactions and use cryptology to make deals secure. Although regulators have expressed concerns about this aspect, trades are recorded on public ledger that anybody on the network can see. Potential uses range from payments for storing client identities or possibly developing smart products such as credit derivatives that pay out automatically upon default by the underlying company. Mm. Goldman's recently published, an app, published application, first reported by Bitcoin Magazine, describes the process to, quote, substantially initiate and settle securities based on crypto cryptographic currency technology without the risks associated with traditional settlement technologies. The application is the latest in a series of efforts by banks to determine how to adopt the technology, which in theory removes the need for middlemen, such as exchanges and clearinghouses. One recent report estimated blockchain could cut up to $20 billion a year off bank infrastructure costs by 2022. But few are sure yet how blockchain will ultimately be adopted. Some would-be users are trumpeting uh, permissionless open-source systems similar to Bitcoin, while others are backing a private network. In a bid to standardize the use of technology, more than 20 banks, including Barclays, HSBC, and UBS, have backed startup called R3CEV, which is setting up a private blockchain open only to invitees, their own little Bitcoin blockchain, right? Others, such as Goldman, are developing their own system. Citigroup is testing its own coin, CityCoin in its laboratories. Banks are also increasingly hedging their bets. Goldman also led $50 million in funding round for Circle Inter Internet Financial, which aims to use Bitcoin to handle consumer payments. Okay, so there's a couple things here that we need to think about. One, what they can actually do with this is create derivatives, which are basically bets against defaults that actually penalize losers immediately in their failure. So the, the whole concept of a private banking system truly holding a nation that it prints currency for by the balls goes up a thousand times right there, but I'll leave that alone. Because here's their problem in this. If you read that article and you understand what it's actually saying, what they're saying is, okay, so let's say if we do a banking transaction and we move a whole bunch of wealth from party A to party B through two different banks. The, the front office, so to say, the front end, it looks like, hey, it just happened. And I have my $20 billion and you gave it to me or whatever. But the reality is behind the scenes, it actually takes a while for that actually to happen. Like days. And during that day in the lag, if it's a stock or a commodity, the bank can get its ass handed to it. Okay? Because of swings and fluctuations or other defaults. So what they want to do is make it so that when that transfer happens, it happens immediately. But that's how it already works if you leave them out of it. Now, it's true that the existing blockchain technology can't be used to move around, let's say, AT&T stocks or options to buy or sell, puts and calls on AT&T stock. It doesn't work for that. It only works for the exchange of base accounting in the form of Bitcoin or Litecoin or Dogcoin or whatever else. But I don't think that the banks comprehend that the whole point of this type of, of an accounting, which is all it really is, is to eliminate them. Or maybe they do. Because, boy, they're scrambling. And I have to say this for the banking system. 
when things like Napster and all came out and revolutionized music to, to, to transform it into what it is today, the music industry hated it, didn't like it, loathed it, wanted to get rid of it, but never comprehended it. And didn't understand that they could actually embrace it. And, and, and it, they were actually a lot less threatened by file sharing and music sharing and digitizing music uh, in many ways than the banks are by the concept of privatized currency through an Internet-based system of exchange that can be privately controlled. The banks are shitting a brick right now. And they're trying to co-opt this before they lose the war. Because most people don't even realize that the war is on right now, that the war is raging, and it is. Basically, the entire premise that you need a bank to oversee financial transactions has not only been challenged, but successfully refuted by Bitcoin. When you have everything from retailers to drug lords doing large volume exchanges of wealth and money on this accounting system, independent of a need for a bank. It's done. And this is the big thing. So they're trying to figure out how to make it do for them what it already does for everybody else. And the people that really have fueled what the blockchain and Bitcoin can do are already working on something far more advanced. Blockchain 2.0, if you want to call it that. The, 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 the whole system is evolving while they're trying to catch up to the beginning. This reminds me of the U.S. government trying to, to, to supplant email. I don't know if you guys know that, but our government, when email first came out, was like, oh, this will never work. I can't email. You can't replace mail. I mean, people want letters and packages and stuff. And you know, The concept that you, you, you think about it this way, like, so with email... Not only can I send you a communication, I can send you a file. So it wasn't just that I could send you a letter. I could send you an entire presentation with images and documents and things that used to have to be mailed. I could send you a song. I could send you a movie. And email was just the first step in that because now when we have more advanced Internet technologies and protocols, I can send you an email with instructions about how to access a piece of information and not actually use that email path to send a larger file through. right? Something like, I have people that send me larger files and don't want to mail them, so to speak, so they put them on Dropbox. So like all of that, nobody could even get their head around. Everybody was still doing business with a calculator and adding machine, 10 key skills, and, 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 a, and a paper ledger, and Excel was cutting edge. As this email thing started to come out, and the U.S. government then finally realized, okay, this is not going away, they're going to do this. So, um, gee, what do we do about it? And their idea was to come up with U.S. government email. And I don't mean like the kind that you know Hillary didn't use and wipe her server clean with. I mean like here's the government's email product. And they thought people would pay for it. And nobody used it. It died a horrendous death. And it was because the government was just trying to catch up to the initial concept of email. While, while email and everything that went with it was evolving so much faster than an entity like the government can. The bad news here is that the banks are a lot better at this stuff than the government is because they are private, and boy, are they private. And they have the power of government-enforced monopolies and the power to access money printed at will plus the innovation of a private company. But I, I don't think they can catch up because I don't think they're willing to all 
really collaborate with each other. And in the end, the mafia families all do want greater dominance and greater positioning. And while they do cooperate quite a bit, they don't cooperate at the level necessary uh, to, compared to what open source can do. But in the end, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. On, on one hand, the concept of a blockchain and electronic currency, true electronic currency, um, and, and the whole way this works gives the international banking cartel everything they ever wanted because you end up in a system where every single transaction can be audited as long as, you, and as long as you're the auditor and no one else can see it. So we can do things like enforce taxes much heavier. And this sends us right into a point where even without a global currency, it might as well be because all currencies become fungible and interchangeable immediately. Right? It, it just, it ends up being this world where you don't have to have a global coin because every nation's coin is interchangeable to every other nation's coin immediately. And all of it can be audited. All of it can be controlled. And whoever controls it controls the world, literally. But at the same time, it's the greatest threat to their dream because it was done by people that isn't them. And it's already been demonstrated that they're not necessary. So this will be a very interesting one to see where it goes because I still believe that the power of the black blockchain, the real power of the blockchain, is less about accounting and more about accountability. And we'll have to see where that leads in the future. How about a quick one totally out of left field here from Josh. Josh says, hey, Jack, really enjoyed your recent podcast on making meat and ciders. However, in your podcast, you did not give very specific instructions as to how much yeast to use per gallon of sire. Is a prepackaged pack that you use similar to bread yeast? What is your source? What is the source you use to purchase your different yeast? Any help would be appreciated. I buy a lot from Midwest Brewing uh, and uh, some other places, but yeast, I generally find the best prices with free shipping when you factor in shipping plus the price on Amazon. And uh, I mentioned some yeast I use, Pasteur Champagne. Uh, I use a lot of the Red Star stuff. Um, but a package of brewing yeast... Everything in the brewing venting world is kind of built around the world of five-gallon batches. It's the most common uh, size batch. So generally you use one packet to a five-gallon batch. And that would mean that you could, to a one-gallon batch, use a fifth. And it should, in theory, work. A lot of people, if they're using the same yeast, they're doing two one-gallon batches on the same day. You put a little bit in one and a little bit in the other and split it in half. And you can do that, and I've done it. But a... If you're using some of the more expensive uh, dry yeast, some like Safel, like T58, or some of the Abbeys and stuff like that for the beers, it, it can be you know three, four dollars a pack, and you might want to be a little more judicious with it. But Red Star uh, wine yeast and most of the other wine yeast sell for around a dollar a package. So to me, when I'm making meads and stuff like that that can use as much help as they can get getting off the ground, I just use a package per gallon. And if I do five gallons, I still use a package per gallon. If I'm doing something that's higher gravity, higher alcohol, I'll use two packages to the gallon. Or I might even cultivate up a yeast starter, which would mean I would take something like a 12-ounce bottle and put some sugar in there uh, and and some water and dilute the sugar down to a fermentable level. And when I say sugar, I mean something like a malt extract or something like that and pitch the yeast in there and put an airlock on it and let that run for like 
five, seven days until it multiplies its ass off. And then I might shake that up and pitch that into my new, you know, five gallon batch or whatever. But in general, I just use one packet to a, to a gallon. I use one packet to five gallons because it's just convenient. About the only time I split a pack in half because I know half a pack is plenty for a gallon is like this weekend. I did some more brewing and, or I should say venting and mead making. And uh, I had two gallons of apple cider that were ready to be what's called racked off, where we take them off of their, their sediment and put them in a new container and let them settle out further and clear further out and finish. And when I got done with that, I had two nice containers all cleaned out, ready to make some more. And I made a pomegranate mead and a black cherry mead. And I did those. I bought one-quart bottles of pure black cherry juice and pure pomegranate juice right in the juice aisle right where they sell apple juice and everything else, just made sure there was no preservatives in them. I bought those, and to each gallon I used a quart. So I made one batch with a quart of cherry and one batch with a quart of pomegranate. And I used uh, Pasteur Blanc wine yeast from Red Start, something I'm trying new. And since I was using the same yeast, and I had made two gallons right at the same time, and they needed to be pitched right about the same time, when I opened that packet, I took two clean cups with warm water, And I put half of the yeast in one cup, half of the yeast in the other. You put a little bit of foil over it. You let it rehydrate for about 15 minutes, and it can be longer. And then you you dump that into your fermentation vessel. So if I'm doing two at the same time, I'll split a package in half. Otherwise, it uses a packet per. And I, I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that. You're giving the yeast every opportunity then to kind of take on and take over and be the dominant player in the wonderful biochemical dance that goes on. Very interesting uh, email here, and absolutely factual. It says, Hi Jack, 2016 will be the first year of mandatory IRA withdrawals for the first of the baby boomers. It seems as if this would not bode well for the market, as the largest stockholders can defer withdrawals until forced to do so. Uh, I do not see demographics favoring the market going forward. I'd like to hear your thoughts. Okay, so, yeah, this is interesting. And all the way back in June of this year, a trend was already noticed. And there's an article on the Wall Street Journal I'll link to about this that kind of shows how this is a problem even before it's a problem. And the title of the article was Money Flows Out of 401Ks as Baby Boomers Age. And it says withdrawals from 401k plans are now exceeding new contributions as baby boomers age, a shift that could have profound implication for the U.S. retirement industry. So let's talk about it without this issue uh, that came in an email here from Jim, that this mandatory withdrawal thing. Let's just talk about it as a, as a thing into itself. People get older. Uh, they've been saving for retirement. They start to live on their retirement. They start needing money for their retirement. They start to take away, take money out of their retirement accounts. And as they do this, they're obviously not buying more stocks. They're not contributing to their retirement accounts. So that's a whole lot of money that's been sitting in the market for the long term without being traded for a very long time, all of a sudden being traded. Okay, now what exasperates this problem is as tough as I am on millennials sometimes, it is a hard place to be right now, to be a young person in America, especially if you're trying to go the career route and you're not into a career with a good growth curve to it. You have a generic degree or no degree and no skills or, or whatever, and you're just trying to get a job 
any kind of a job. They're very low-paying jobs. There's no question that wages have not kept place with inflation, period. So they're coming into this, and they're either not saving money in the stock market because they've seen their parents and, and grandparents get their ass beat, and they've seen all the bloodletting, and they have no confidence in it, or they're not saving money for their retirement at all, period, because they don't have enough cash to barely make it anyway. So at the same time you have one group exiting, the group that's supposed to be entering and making up the slack, so to speak, as buyers in, all of a sudden isn't there. So we start to see the United States stock market is what it really is. Here it is. Probably the first person to ever really say this to you. It's a Ponzi scheme. No! It's the free market! It's capitalism! No, 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 no. No, it used to be. It used to be. When, when the, the concept of mass enrollment in mutual funds came around and a systemized process was created where a financial liar goes to an office, tells everybody to sign up, HR tells them to sign up, everybody tells you to do it, and there's a mass marketing campaign that's been running for 40 years now about how important this is. And I'm not saying it's not good to save for your retirement. I'm just saying. And everybody's put into a very similar formula. And we have more mutual funds than stocks now, by the way. Do you know that? There's more mutual funds than stocks that go. And I'm only talking about stock-based mutual funds. I'm not talking about ETFs and all kinds of derivatives and things like that. If you just look at all the mutual funds, Franklin, Templeton, etc., small cap, large cap, growth, emerging markets, all of that stuff, and you compare it to the total number of stocks listed on the major exchanges, more mutual funds than stocks. And everybody's basically allocated into 100% stocks. Growth and income, conservative, aggressive, whatever. Dividend producers, index matching funds, whatever. But in the end, everybody's in stocks. It becomes a Ponzi scheme. Because you push so much money in as an investment that the market becomes irrational. And stocks and funds become worth more than the companies that they back. And there's two parts to the value of any share of stock in the market. This is important, guys. Don't tune out. This is really important shit here. If you understand this, you'll understand how we are screwed long term in every way economically. That the debt, the national debt is a, is a problem, but this is a bigger problem, okay? So everybody's in there. And you have a, a stock, an individual stock, and it's trading at, let's say, $20 a share. There's a portion of that stock that is based on the value of that company. Let's say that number is $15. Bucks. Let's say it's, this stock's not tremendously overvalued. Okay, it's, 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 it's the company and the shares, and there's very few stocks that are that okay right now. $15 is if we actually just took the company, chopped it up into a million shares, a hundred million shares, whatever number of stocks out there, and said, well, what's the company worth if we liquidated and sold it today, uh, or its income track record or whatever? $15 bucks a share. Okay, fine. $5 is then influenced by speculation. And it's really three things, because there's a direct speculation. There's investors that look at that stock and say, I am going to buy that stock 
because I think this company has upside potential beyond the $15 underlying value, price-to-earnings ratios. Okay, So that, let's say, puts $2.50 on the stock. So where's the other $2.50 come from? In this, and and these, these numbers are not directly representative. It's just so you can understand it. Because it doesn't even matter. If there's any, it matters when it starts, when it starts to unravel. Okay. So the other $2.50 in this is we're say is that there's so many mutual funds. And there's so many people on automatic investment programs with 401ks and IRAs and Roths and conventional and all of it added up together. All this money that just gets dumped in the laps of money managers. And a money manager has, has, is managing a stock fund that is a, a mid-cap stock fund. There's only so many stocks that qualify under the definition and charter of that company as a mid-cap stock fund. And if a stock seems relatively stable and it's a mid-cap stock, you can bet it's going to end up in that fund if the manager has a clue. So you have 20, 30, 40, 1,000 mid-cap stock managers that are making orders for this particular stock every single month because they have to effing do something with the money. They can't leave it cash. They can't do it. They are required by law to invest the money. Okay, so what happens when some of that money that was forcing investment in this stock isn't there anymore? Well, in some ways it's good because now the stocks have to actually compete for the investment dollars at a real level or a more real level because there's less fake money just shoved in there. They have to actually attract investors on a more genuine way. But the problem is, is, as that begins to occur, as the sell orders exceed the buy orders, that fictitious percentage of the stock stops being there to apply upward pressure, and it begins to fall in value for no apparent reason. The company has good earnings. They're not losing a lot of money. They're basically doing everything right. They've just, there's the term, fallen out of favor with investors. Well, they haven't fallen out of favor with investors. They've stopped getting basically what amounts to quantitative easing from a private source. All the grandmas and grandpas that are retiring and stopping their contributions and all the young whippersnappers that can't afford to invest. As they begin to come down, a rising tide floats, floats all boats, right? Yeah, well, a tide that goes out causes all boats to freaking drop. And the whole thing starts to unravel. And that's why you're seeing things like all of this emphasis about we need to encourage Americans to invest more of their paycheck. We need to make it easier. The, the, the government is not stupid, guys. If I can see this, if a redneck son of a coal miner farmer in Texas can see this, so can the United States government. They're not as dumb as we've been led to believe. Okay? They know this. And on top of it, they have this whole problem with how do we service our debt? Because that's becoming unsustainable. So you have the stock market with upward continuous growth being necessary to make everybody happy. The market can't go flat for a year and have anybody be happy. It has to grow. You have the market needing growth at a time when the buy orders are failing to exceed the sell orders. So you have to artificially prop it up. So you go into quantitative easing, you take government money, you stuff it with the banks, you shit interest levels to zero where the banks go, damn it, we, we have to buy stocks. And the government goes, don't worry about it. 
You guys print the money. Print your own money. Give it to yourself and buy stocks. Okay, we'll do that. They even buy their own stocks just to, to get rid of shares and increase the dividend and make it like the bank's making more money than it was. And while all that's going on, you can't service your debt load. Your debt is fixing to be $20 trillion. And the whole global economic system is decoupling and decentralizing and relying less on your global currency. Guys, this is not good. It is good, but it's not good. It is good because it, it, it is a step toward eliminating our ability to use the soft financial power of the dollar to tell the rest of the world how to live. The bad news is we've all profited from that even while we said we didn't want it to happen. And all of the easy life that it's afforded us is now in jeopardy. Because he's, and here's what it's going to be. You know what these, these, these greedy old people, you know, they're rich and they're taking all her money. Maybe there should be some new wealth taxes on people. Maybe we should make it where they don't have to mandatorily take their money out. But see, that's why I brought this up. The, before the mandatory withdrawal started, Because 2016, what they do is they say well, the first baby boomers are X years old now. And at this, see, in a, in a, in an IRA, and even if you have a 401k, eventually when you leave your job, you, you can't just leave it in, an, in a 401k. You have to roll it to an IRA eventually. And when it gets into an IRA, there's a point where the government says you have to take a certain amount out every year. Now, when the government initially did this, you got to think about this. The way IRAs worked was, You got a tax deduction when you made the contribution and you paid tax on the money, okay, when the money came out. So you would, they would want to make you take the money out so that they could tax you on it. They've been waiting so long to tax you on that money. But what happened in the interim is we got the Roth. So we got two different basketballs coming. We got the first basketball and that first basketball is a windfall for the government. It's all conventional. Almost nobody in this group that's reaching man, because they say at a certain age you gotta start taking the money. Almost nobody in that group is gonna take that money out tax free. They're all gonna pay taxes on it. Because they never paid taxes on it, because it's tax deferred income. Okay? The second basketball starts coming through and it, it, it starts, you know, way later. 1997. So, there's not, now there are some boomers, They were certainly part of the workforce still in 97 that are just retiring now that will get mandatory age a few year, more years down the road that when this came out switched to it. But they usually didn't move their money to it. It was too expensive. It was too costly. All they did was say, well, from now on, all my contributions are going to go here. So there's a little bit of it, but mostly you're looking at another 20 years before the Roth money's coming out in earnest. It's all conventional, so the government gets to tax it. But it's like cutting off your nose to spite your face. If anybody remembers that old statement, right? Or that old saying. So the government has forced grandma and grandpa to sell their stock, take their damn money, and pay their damn tax on it already. I don't want you just keeping it. And now we get to tax it, but we're taxing it at a pretty low tax bracket. Because these people don't have huge incomes, by and large. They add up to a lot of money, but these are not generally people that are being taxed at 33, 36%, right? These are people that are being taxed at, you know, effective tax rate are being taxed at 12, 14%. But the government gets a piece of that. But every time it happens, stocks, stocks are sold and there's less and less buyers. And that can only do one thing, drive the overall price of the stock market down. 
So then you create a quantitative easing program under the auspices of saving the country. And what you're actually doing is buying these stocks to put upward pressure on a market that's imploding. You see where this goes. And at the same time, the people of the world have gotten tired of all your manipulation and started creating their own ways to do commerce and business with each other. Guys, you're sitting in the middle of multiple insurrections right now. And the insurrectionists are everybody from governments themselves committing acts of insurrection against their citizens by breaking their grand bargain, which are their underlying constitutions. The people of the nations getting tired of it and saying, I'm not going to do things your way in your system anymore. And the giant corporations are insurrectionists against both because they're having less control of the government because the government is losing its control. See, you're only willing as a tyrant to share control as long as your control is not threatened. Once your control starts to become threatened, the, the other you know, criminal you made a deal with, since there's only so much left, as the pie gets smaller, the piece you want for yourself gets bigger. You got a big-ass pie, and, and you got the criminals on one side, and criminal, criminal A and criminal B. Well, criminal A and criminal B will cut that pie right down the middle. They might fight over a few scraps that's left in a tin, but they pretty much cut the pie in half. As that pie starts to shrink, you start looking at the other criminal's piece and go, yours, yours is a little bit bigger than mine. Oh, they're the same size. No, yours is a little bit bigger than mine. Hey, I think yours is a little... And you start fighting amongst each other. And that's what you've got right now. You've got multiple global insurrections. And they're occurring right in front of everyone. And nobody understands it because insurrections and revolutions in the past have always been about people shooting each other. And, and while there's plenty of that going on... It's not to that level. You're watching multiple insurrections unfold in front of you. And and my statement is, get with the plan then. Figure out your own individual plan for insurrection. Be your own sovereign being. Take control of your life. Create your own systems. Voluntarily participate in systems outside of the ones that you're told you have to participate in. Self-educate. Teach yourself. Ask your own questions. Get your own answers. Stop letting other people dictate to you not only what the answers are, but what the questions are. That's the greater crime of modern media and public education. It isn't just telling people this is how you're supposed to see the answer in, in the world of school. This is the answer, and this is the only answer. Because in general, it, it is the right answer in school, when it's math or English or something like that, okay? But what is the question? And with the media, it is, here's one of your two accepted explanations. You can either believe this or that, but there's no third. And as bad as those things are, again, it is saying, these are the questions you should be asking. These are the issues you should be concerned about. You know, it's really important that you worry about terrorism, but it's not important that you worry about the fact that doctors kill more people than terrorists every year. Not because doctors are bad people, but because the pharmaceutical industry that doctors are a part of, is it not as safe as you've been led to believe? I'm not even saying it's evil. I'm just saying there's, there's risks there that people don't even think about. Properly prescribed medications. Let me read this. This is on Harvard University. Uh, Edmund J. Soffer, Center for Ethics. This is Harvard is a source. But article from 2014, June of 2014. Few people know that prescription drugs have a one in five chance of causing serious reactions after they've been approved. 
That is why expert physicians recommend not taking new drugs for at least five years unless patients have first tried better established options and have the need to do so. Few know that systemic reviews of hospital charts found that even properly prescribed prescription drugs, aside from misprescribing, overdosing, and self-prescribing, cause about 1.9 million hospitalizations every year. Another 840,000 hospitalized patients are given drugs that cause serious adverse reactions for a total of 2.74 million serious adverse drug reactions. About 128,000 people die from drugs prescribed to them. This makes prescription drugs a major health risk, ranking fourth with stroke as the leading cause of death. A hundred? This is according to Harvard. This is cleansed and sanitized and totally kosher number, numbers. 2.74 million that have serious adverse health reactions and 128,000 people a year die from drugs prescribed to them by their doctors, drugs that are advertised on television more than just about... Have you noticed the TV advertising? If you don't DVR something and can't skip it all, almost the number one advertisement on television today is for prescription medications. The medications that are advertised to you and to your children while you're watching anything from football to Nickelodeon kill 128,000 people a year. And no one says flipping blip about it. No one says a damn thing about it, but we're supposed to alter the entire free society because 14 people are shot. That doesn't mean those 14 lives aren't valid or important, but it means maybe we need a little bit of freaking perspective. But remember what we started this show with, that your government literally pays the quote-unquote trusted, and I don't know if that word applies anymore because more and more people are figuring this shit out, the trusted major news organizations to have control over content, to bury stories, and to report fake stories. Nothing should surprise you. Nothing should surprise you anymore. But I do believe that because of all this, there are these multiple insurrections. What side will win? I believe in the long run that it's kind of corny as it sounds. Sooner or later, the good guys do win. The best ideas generally win out in the end, despite all of the setbacks. And, and, the, and it's like, again, that's not a rosy future because if we look at history, and you know, whenever somebody wants to look at major death and like the most hated person that, that ever lived, it's Adolf Hitler. Well, you know, 65 million people died in World War II, but I, I don't think anybody with a brain can say Adolf Hitler gets credit for all of those. You know, if we look at Genghis Khan, it racked up a death toll more in the line of 40 million and was far more directly responsible for that total number. And I'm not saying Hitler was a good guy or anything. I'm saying there's like every time I hear the name Hitler anymore since we started doing the history segments, the more I I, I sit back and think how little people know about how much death has really come at the hands of, of government. And Genghis Khan today is not really generally looked at as like a mass murderer. It's He's almost a folk hero. Or, or Tamer Lane, right? That racked up a, a head count of about 17 million. Uh, at a time when the global population was a hell of a lot less than it was during World War II. If you start looking at some of the, these these mass murderers from further back... 
and you look at the percentage, like what was the total percentage of the global population that ended up dead because of them? You know, they're, they're worse. Or we look at something like the Soviet Union and the total death toll we can attribute to Joseph Stalin being 20 million and most of those being his own people. And the media just kind of like doesn't really, I mean, no one says Stalin was a good guy or anymore or anything like that. But we don't even hear much about how bad Mao Zedong was. His death toll is more like 40 million. 40 million. We take Mao Zedong, Genghis Khan, we put them together, we get 80 million people. 80 million people. You add Joseph Stalin to that list? 100 million. 100 million. And yet somehow, every place that those men influenced, and every place that they waged war, is actually better today than it was when they were around. And not just because they're dead. Because in the end, people want to survive, and people want to innovate, and people want a better life. So I think that in this mass series of insurrections, it's, it's, it's the individual that over time, that, that just doesn't give up, that will win out, that The future is bright for humanity in spite of all of the darkness that goes along with it. And, you know, at the beginning of the show, I said we might come around to back to some of the things I was talking about with our ending song today. And I think that's like, that is the hope. That I think that when we look at advancement of humanity over time, there are turnings. There's the famous book, The Fourth Turning, etc. And that we're kind of at the bottom of one right now. We really are. We've kind of gone down the rat hole in every way possible. It's it, it, That means that the next turning is the beginning to move upward. And, you know, you guys that I'm hard on, you millennials, it's going to either be you or it's going to be this Generation Z. It's going to do it. It's going to be who wants it, who wants to make it happen. There's all of the people that are my age and older, we're going to get old, we're going to turn gray, and to be blunt, in what seems like no time at all to a lot of you guys that are 20, we'll be dying. We'll be dying. We'll be gone. And we'll take some of the baggage and the bad with us. If you guys don't just go out of your way to hold on to it and keep it here and keep it alive, you know, picking scabs off of wounds in the name of healing them, if you'll stop that shit, at least that'll be the one thing from our passing, the remnants of what we hold on to, the bigotry, the callousness, it will go away with us. But at the same time, we learn from those lessons, and we're here telling you the way things can be. And it's up to you to decide when this next generation is going to turn toward the positive. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Yeah.
Turn, turn, turn. There is a season turn.